And now, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, the podcast you've all been waiting for, Legacy Story with Adam Solomini. Thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, you're too kind. You are such a great crowd. That's right, listeners, I can hear you applauding through whatever device that you were listening to this podcast. Hey, my name is Adam Salmini, and this is my podcast, Legacy Story. Ultimately, this podcast is meant to rekindle your own legacy story memories and ignite a desire to create more. We are back with the special series on books that can help you create your own legacy story. Last week, we discussed The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman, Smart Women Finish Rich by David Bach, and The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did, as it was personally helpful to just go back and look at some notes and reacquaint myself with those very books. This episode, we continue our book club of sorts, and we will dive into the core principles and key points of some more books. Really, this is meant to inspire you to pick one or all of these books and give them a read or a listen. Before we start, if you happen to have a book that you feel has impacted your legacy story, feel free to email me. You can do so at LegacyStoryPodcast at Infinancer.com. All right, if you're ready... I'm ready. Let's get into it. We are going to set this episode off with a classic, Awaken the Giant Within, written by this guy. I don't know if you know him, a guy named Tony Robbins, the penultimate in motivation. Am I right? Well, let's talk about Awaken the Giant Within. This book is the psychological blueprint you can follow to wake up and start taking control of your life, starting in your mind, spreading through your body, and then all the way through your relationships, work, and finances until you're the giant you were always meant to be. There really are three lessons to help you feel more in charge of your life than ever before. One, associate bad habits with pain and good ones with pleasure. Two, change the words you use to transform how you feel and deal with problems. And three, make up your own rules and communicate them to become happier. Let's dive into it a little bit further, shall we? So associate bad habits with pain and good ones with pleasure. All of our actions are aimed at either avoiding pain or getting pleasure. Going to the job that you don't like is something you do to avoid the pain of not being able to pay rent or your mortgage. Listening to the type of music that you like should lift your spirits and so on. You can use this framework to successfully break bad habits and establish good ones. You simply have to pair bad habits with pain and good habits with pleasure. An example that has been used is if you want to quit eating chocolate, let's say. Tony says you should force yourself to sing a song you hate out loud every time you eat some. After having to sing a terrible song loudly at a packed restaurant even once, Just because you ordered a molten chocolate lava cake for dessert, chances are you'll easily avoid the cocoa-packed candy from then on. Eventually, you'll have to replace your bad habit with a new, better, more positive one in order to fill the void. 
This is a crucial part of habit change. A technique called temptation bundling can help you with it. I'll give you an example. Let's say you just love, love, love this podcast and you have to listen to this podcast. It's something you look forward to all of the time. So in order to bundle temptations, you would only allow yourself to, let's say, listen while working out at the gym. As a result, you can catch up or re-listen to episodes five times a week and work out five times a week. And there you have it, results. The second lesson, which was use different words to end up in a different state of mind, is also very interesting. If you've ever seen Tony Robbins in action, you know he's a powerful guy in every sense of the word. He's tall, big, loud, and has a very positive aura. Something you might not have picked up on is his vocabulary. Tony always uses expressive and unusual language to reinforce positive emotions and play down negative ones. He calls this transformational vocabulary and says it's very important to watch your language because the way you describe how you experience the world is a big and defining part of that experience. In the English language, there are over 3,000 words to describe emotions. Unfortunately, 66% of them are for negative emotions, twice as many as for positive ones. So the key is to reinforce good feelings with powerful words and play down bad emotions with less intense language. An example would be instead of saying that going to the beach makes you feel happy, you could say, I'm in complete bliss. And instead of screaming, every time I'm looking for the remote, it annoys the crap out of me. You could simply say, well, the remote being lost is a bit unfortunate. Playing up the positive and playing down the negative. That's the key. The third lesson was make up your own rules and tell other people about them to increase your happiness. Here's something you might have said before. I'm having a long day at work today, but I know I'll feel great once I sit down on my couch after I come home. Have you ever thought about something like that? I'm pretty sure you have. We all have our own little rules that determine what does and doesn't make us happy. Many times, though, we make up rules where we give away control. Here's an example. Oh, I'll be so happy if my partner tells me the dinner I cooked them tastes better than anything they've ever tasted before. That's not really a good rule to have because you hand over your happiness to your partner, whom you can't control. So first, make up better rules. I'll be happy that I get to spend time with my partner while we eat the dinner that I've created. Now that is a lot better rule than the previous one, isn't it? It's something that you can influence. Second, communicate your rules as much as you can because you cannot expect other people to have the same rules as you do. When you think your best friend is not a good friend because she only calls you once a month, then that's just your rule about thinking best friends call each other every few days. If you tell her that's what you believe and she'll tell you her rule, which then lets the two of you find a better solution that works for both of you, then that's a better outcome, isn't it? I believe it is. Shout out to my friends. We have a group text, and I'm pretty sure we text each other at least once a day. We've known each other. Well, many of us have known each other since elementary school, so it's been a fun thing to start, and we actually started that during the pandemic when we all had time because we were all at home. But it continued after that, so that's cool. What up, friends? 
Anyways, those were the three lessons, or at least a summary of it, from Awaken the Giant Within. Our next book, Everyday Millionaires by Chris Hogan. When Chris Hogan was in his 30s, he started working with Dave Ramsey, who's a famous radio program personality and writes a lot of books about financial discipline. This inspired him to become a financial coach and change how he saw things. He got out of debt and began creating wealth that lasts. This book is unique, though, because he was inspired to do a study on millionaires. So he and his team surveyed more than 10,000 American millionaires to find out who they were, what they believed in, and their success strategies. Now, there are tons of myths about millionaires that need to be dispelled, and this book aimed to do just that by listing several of those myths and explaining why they're not true. This also happened to be the largest study of millionaires ever done. So let's talk about some of the major points from this study. A study, by the way, that I have talked about in the past. I believe it was episode 23, which was the legacy story of your average Joe or Jill millionaire. So this book is one of the many sources that I used for that podcast. Now you should check that podcast out. But about this book, let's get into it a little bit further. I think one of the points that are lost in this book is that you can't become a millionaire unless you believe you can. And once you do, be proud of it. There's a myth that the American dream is dead. Some people say that the average person can't get ahead in today's society, but this isn't true. It's not a fact. If you don't know who Chris Hogan is, he experienced firsthand the constant pounding of this myth in his community. A black man raised by a single parent in Kentucky, he was constantly hearing that there was no way that he could make it out, that he could become a millionaire. But what he realized is that if you have an unshakable belief in yourself and your ability to become wealthy, then you will be successful no matter what other people say about you or what they try to convince you of otherwise. Roger Bannister is a great example of someone who changed the way people thought about something. He proved that it was possible for someone to run a mile in under four minutes. And we're in the middle of the Olympics right now. Well, at the beginning of the Olympics. So I thought I'd bring up a little running example. At first, everyone said that this wasn't possible. But once Roger Bannister showed them how he did it, other runners started trying and eventually succeeded at running their own sub four minute miles it became normalized. More and more people were running sub four minute miles. Then you saw college athletes do it. Then you saw high school athletes do it. All because Roger Bannister showed that it could be done. And he showed them how he did it. So becoming a millionaire is possible. You can look around and see that others have done it and so can you. Did you know there are almost 11 million millionaires in America today? Another big takeaway from this book is most wealthy people earn their money through hard work and they deserve it. Everyone's heard people talk about millionaires as if they were just trust fund babies or, oh, they must have just inherited that money. In reality, when someone says that, they're just making an excuse as to why they don't have to work just as hard as that person did to become a millionaire. Unfortunately, there are a lot of people who think that if you're wealthy, it must have been either luck or being born into money. So here's the kicker. 79% of those interviewed in this study didn't receive any inheritance at all. 
They worked hard and they lived frugally to achieve their financial success. Many of them are teachers, engineers, some were doctors, some were nurses, some were lawyers, some were firefighters or policemen. Many of them have their own business. You can't just say when you start your own business that it all oh, it must have been an overnight success and that's why they're a millionaire. I like to call that the uh, nine-year overnight success. People don't see the years and years of hard work that these people are putting into it before they become successful. Let's continue on with the Olympic examples. Michael Phelps is quite arguably the most successful Olympian in history. He's gifted with a body that's perfect for swimming and has been training really hard to be where he is now. A lot of people say he got lucky or was born with great genes, but they don't realize how much work he put into it. He trained for up to six hours a day with only one day off a week. He swam almost 50 miles every week. And that doesn't even include the diet, the weightlifting, in addition to, well, regular life. Some other quick and interesting facts from this book is 8 out of 10 millionaires invested in their company's 401k and 3 out of 4 of those surveyed invested outside of company plans. The people in the study became millionaires by consistently saving over time. In fact, they worked, saved, and invested for an average of 28 years before hitting the million dollar mark and most of them reached that milestone at age 49. Here's a crazy one. 93% of millionaires use coupons all or some of the time when shopping. They live frugally. I bet you like to eat out, don't you? But you spend a lot of money eating out. Now, this was my anniversary month, so I splurged on eating out. and I couldn't even reach this little tidbit, which is they spend $200 or less each month on restaurants. Is that crazy or what? I mean, one anniversary dinner out might do that. Gotta feed the wifey. Gotta do it. I mentioned some careers. The top five careers for millionaires uh, are engineer, accountant, or CPA, teacher, somebody in management, and an attorney. 62%, yep, almost two-thirds of millionaires graduated college from public universities or state schools. This one time uh, we went to a basketball game. It was San Diego State, of course, go Aztecs. And we were playing UCLA in UCLA's backyard. It was at the Honda Center in Anaheim. And I believe it was the Wooden Classic. So we were in UCLA's backyard playing in a tournament named after their famous coach. And not surprising to me, but maybe surprising to you, there actually were a lot more Aztec fans there than UCLA fans. And they thought that they were going to just walk all over us. So their student section began their chant. The chant went like this. You're a state school. You're a state school. And they did that for about the first six minutes before we blew them out of the water. And at the end, our student section was chanting, We're a state school. We're a state school. It was very enjoyable. And the game wasn't even that close. I think that also happened when I watched them play at USC. Same chant by the end of the game. Our traveling student section said the same chant right back to them because we beat them, of course. San Diego State owns California in basketball. I'm just saying. Okay, back to the book. Overall, this book showed that there's a dramatic difference between how Americans think wealthy people got their money and how they actually earn and spend their money. Very good book. I recommend it. 
All right, the last book that we'll cover in this episode is 7L, The Seven Levels of Communication. The Seven Levels of Communication tells a story of a real estate agent named Rick Masters, who is suffering from a down economy when he meets a mortgage professional who has built a successful business without advertising or personal promotion. Masters, although skeptical, agrees to accompany her to a conference to learn more about her mysterious methods. He soon learns that the rewards for implementing these strategies are far greater than he had ever imagined. In seeking success, he finds significance. This book is not only a building a business book, but it's also a book that feeds your soul. The author of the book is Michael J. Meyer, a very well-known real estate professional and founder of the Generosity Generation. The book, in a way, tells the story of how he rocketed to the top of the profession by earning $1 million in his third year of full-time real estate. Some of the major takeaways from this book that you might be interested in are these. Don't wait for a life-changing event to change your life. When written in Chinese, the word crisis is composed of two characters. One represents danger and the other represents opportunity. That was actually a quote from John F. Kennedy that you can find in the book. Give more than you get. Now, this has to do with real estate, but I think you can apply it to your own life. Here's a cool note. If your buyers aren't buying and your sellers aren't motivated to sell, perhaps it is your sense of urgency that is lacking and not theirs. Write handwritten notes to everyone for everything. He likes to use the acronym LIFE, L-I-F-E. Learn, implement, fail, evaluate. Now let's talk about the seven levels of communication, right? One-on-one -on -one meetings is at the top of the pyramid. Think of this as a pyramid. It's called the influential zone. Events and seminars are also in the influential zone, right below it. Phone calls are in the influential zone. Handwritten notes are in the influential zone as we move down the pyramid. Electronic communication is in the informational zone. Direct mail is in the informational zone. Advertising is also in the informational zone as we continue down the pyramid. So advertising is at the very bottom of the pyramid. He believes that when your why is strong enough, the how takes care of itself. And when I do any type of coaching, financial, personal, business, that it really is one of the things that I focus on is the why. And it's super important because it reveals many things. Here's an interesting thing, and like I said, this is about real estate, but it might apply to your life, and he feels to get 50 referrals, you will have to give out 100 referrals. Write your blessings down every morning. Another acronym that he uses is FROG, F-R-O-G, and he asks you to use the acronym to carry on a conversation. Ask about a person's family, recreation, occupation, and goals. He highly recommends the DISC profile, which is an assessment that determines a person's behavioral styles. Everybody has some of each, but one of them is typically more dominant than others. The four behavioral styles spell the acronym DISC. D stands for dominance. Ds are straight to the point. They tend to be driven, fast-paced, impatient, efficient, and brutally honest. They aren't into long explanations. They want the bottom line. I stands for influence and eyes love socializing. They are often outgoing, friendly, emotional, and energetic. They're the life of the party. S stands for steadiness, and S is steady and dependable. S is nurture people. They live to serve and please. 
C is for compliance. C's are perfectionists who expect everyone to comply with the rules. They crave order and process. Now, you can't spell disk without discovery. And this is his discovery. Care like everyone's an S. Smile like everyone's an I. Prepare like everyone's a C. And sell like everyone's a D. In this book, he implores you to end all meetings with people, especially when you're networking, with these two questions. How can I help you? And what can I do for you? If you're a salesperson and you're hesitating to call, it's because you're thinking about yourself. If you're thinking about helping the people you're calling and focusing on their needs, it's easy to pick up the phone. The person who talks the most dominates the conversation, but the person who asks the most questions controls the conversation. Emails. Emails are for you to inform, confirm, or to get people on the phone. Don't sell or try to close deals via email. Focus on people. When you take care of the people, the numbers will take care of themselves. He also likes the first and ten approach. First thing upon starting your day at the office, make 10 phone calls. First and 10. As I mentioned, this definitely is a book that was initially designed for people in real estate. And the guy in the story is a real estate agent. However, when you read it, you'll definitely pull several insights that can apply to any business. And that's why I recommend that you should check it out. Well, that's all for today's episode of Legacy Story. Thank you for listening. Join me next time when we continue this special series on books that can help you create a legacy story. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. Also, if you really enjoy this podcast, consider donating. You can do so via Cash App at dollar sign in financer. Don't forget to follow me on social media at Your Legacy Story or The Legacy Story on Twitter and also at InFinancer. If you're interested in changing your trajectory, you can book a free discovery session with me at InFinancer.com. I-N-F-I-N-A-N-C-E-R.com. Until next time, ciao.